By a show of hands, how many of you enjoy smoked meats? All right, most of us. I know some of you guys are vegan. It's okay. We love you too. But, uh, but smoked meats, yes. I am an equal opportunist meat eater. All right? There's pretty much, there's pretty few things that you could lay before me that I wouldn't at least give it a try. If it had a pulse and it squealed, clucked, or mood, I'm your man. All right? Um, but probably my favorite of all of those, of course, is like Texas brisket. If you, you just, man, I mean, I'm not from Texas, but dang. Come on, y'all. Uh, Carolina, I'm a big, now, don't judge me. I'm a Carolina barbecue guy. So I like the vinegar. I like this stuff that makes your mouth pucker, right? All right, that's me. I'm not that sweet stuff. I'm, I'm all about the vinegar, right? I got my Carolinans over here. They got mustard base. They're mustard base, folks, I guess, in South Carolina, right? Probably one of my favorite places, although it's not quite as popular as it used to be, is a place called Sticky Fingers. And we used to go there when I was in Hilton Head, and they would have these fall-off-the-bone ribs. Yeah? You've ever had those? And there's some men in here, by the way, who have really gifted skills at this, by the way. And so if you find out who they are, you know, petition them to help you out, all right? Now, I'm not here this morning to make you hungry physically, although I've probably done that sufficiently, right? Um, but I do wish to whet your appetite this morning. I do wish to help you see that as we look at this text, the scripture that we've just read, that we are going to explore some of the richest, some of the most beautiful, some of the most fall off the meat, fall off the bone meat that you could I could ever enjoy together. And scriptures tell us by this point you should be you should be enjoying the meat of the gospel, but many of us don't grow up into that. We're still nursing on the milk of it. And this today is the meat of the gospel. What we're going to find out. But I don't want to do this morning, though, is I don't want to take this text and I want to treat it like in this eisegetical kind of way where I just kind of pick it out and I just kind of have a good time with it just because I'm a good Calvinist. But because I'm, I want to take this text and I want to set it in the context of Ezekiel for us so that you and I will enjoy it even more. Because once we start to see what Ezekiel is doing here, I think you and I will enjoy it all the more. Because here's some of the things we're going to see this morning. What we're going to see this morning is God's glory. But not only God's glory, his passion for his own glory. I don't know that many of us think about God's passion for his own glory. We're going to behold the lengths in which God will go to vindicate his own glory, his own name from the nations, as we've already read in some ways. We're going to see in this text his new covenant where he redeems a people for himself so that he can vindicate his name and all of his glory. And friends, we're just going to see that's just the tip of the iceberg. We're going to mine in a little, a little deep this morning. And so this morning, here's the, here's the main sermon summary. If you, if you wanted me to put the sermon in one sentence, although it's very difficult to do so, I have managed to do it in about 13 or 14 words. God will vindicate his name through the redemption of a people for his possession. God will vindicate his name through a people, through the redemption of a people for his possession. That the primary means that God goes about vindicating his name, showing and displaying his passion for his own glory, is through the redemption of his people. The people sitting in this room who confess Christ as their Savior are part of that legacy, part of that heritage. 
Now, for, in order for us to enjoy this text this morning, what I need to do is I need to take a minute, as I typically do, but I want to do it a little bit more expediently this morning, um, to give us the context of this meal that we're going to enjoy this morning so that we can enjoy it more fully. And again, we won't end up doing this kind of pick and pluck out what we, our favorite parts of this text because that's very easy to do in Ezekiel 36. So here's the flow we've been in in Ezekiel over the past few months. Last week, we examined that there's this transition happening in Ezekiel in chapter 34 where God is transitioning from revealing his wrath against the nations, revealing his, wrath, his, his judgment against Israel for their failure to be his covenant people and to prize him among all things in the world. We've, we saw that transition to now a, the, the fulfillment and the revelation of promise. And we saw the first step in that promise last week, according to Ezekiel, was that God is going to send a new shepherd. And namely that this new shepherd is God. God will be our shepherd. That was one of our points last week. He's not content to just be judged. He's, he, wants a, he is going to be his people's shepherd. Let that comfort you this morning. He is a good shepherd. And not only is he going to be our shepherd, but he sends a better shepherd to us in human form, incarnate in his son, Jesus. So God takes on flesh and becomes the good and full shepherd that we all need. And this good shepherd will call us out and in the process provide eternal pastures for the sheepfold that are of his own possession. That's what we saw all last week. And what we took away from that is that God is still, all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, God is still committed to his promises to have a people, a seed for himself. And that seed will be a people saved by the ultimate seed, Jesus, who will crush the head of Satan. Genesis 3.15. But there's a question that remains as we consider the fact of this coming new shepherd. And it is this. What is this better shepherd going to do? What will he make right? How will he make it right? How will he go about his Work and, and as we get into chapter 35 today and 36, I believe with God's providence, God has, has chosen, Ezekiel anticipates this question, and he ultimately spends chapter 35 and the first part of 36 uh, addressing once again the core issue that's at play here with the coming of the Good Shepherd. And it's namely this that God was, has been judging the nations for not prizing his people. All right, like all the nations, one of the things that God got on the news about, what he's going to get on, we're going to talk about Edom this morning, is because our, those people are jealous of God's people and they do not prize God's people and they do not honor God by honoring God's people. And we see this throughout the generations. We see this in history today. And so God's been judging them for using their own geopolitical purposes to thwart even God's own plans and promises to Israel. And so their guilt was related to their prideful arrogance, was it not? Egypt, Edom, you know, Babylon, all these others. It's related to their prideful arrogance of those who would build kingdoms and enterprise on their own apart from God. That's the ultimate, like, like thumbing your nose at God. That you would have the audacity to build your own kingdom and your own enterprise 
apart from God as if there is no consequences to those things. So this is the why God is judging the nations. And so one of those nations that we mentioned back in chapter 25 was Edom. So let's read here in 35 to kind of get some context, okay? Just the first couple of ver- first nine verses. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, mount, face Mount Seir and prophesy against it. Now Mount Seir is another word for Edom. Say to it, this is what the Lord God says. Look, I am against you, Mount Seir, and I will stretch out my hand against you and make you a desolate waste. I will turn your cities into ruins and, I will become a de- and you will become a desolation. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Because you maintained a perpetual hatred and gave the Israelites over to the power of the sword in the time of their disaster, the time of final punishment. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord. I will destine you for bloodshed, and I will pursue you. Since you did not hate bloodshed, I will pursue you. I will make Mount Seir a a desolate waste, and I will cut off from it those who come and go. I will fill its mountains with the slain. Those slain by the sword will fall on their hills, in their valleys, and in in your ravines. I will make you a perpetual desolation. Your cities will not be inhabited. Then you will know that I am the Lord." The second time Edom's been mentioned in Ezekiel's prophecy. And as I said before, back in 25, God is indicting Edom for the very same thing that we're being reminded of right here, that they saw the suffering of Israel, and instead of being one who would be a good neighbor, they postured in various ways politically and sociopolitically, whatever you want to say, to gain control of the land. And why? Well, the reason why... It's because this struggle between Israel and Edom goes back a very long way. And many of us maybe know what it is. Who is Edom? Well, Edom has its founding in Esau. He is the brother of Jacob. And you know the story from back in Genesis 27. Jacob, not the most honorable individual in the whole world, goes and does some pretty shady things. And he ends up gaining the the blessing of his father Isaac. And in that process, Isaac tells him, you, I've given it to your brother. I can't give it to no other. And this, of course, enrages Esau. He, he, he intends to, uh, to kill Jacob. Jacob flees for many years. Eventually, they come back and they make a covenant to live among each other and to, and to get along, let bygones be bygones. And by the time we get to, like, I think it's Ezekiel, 30, or Ezekiel 30-ish, somewhere in that neighborhood. I mean, I'm sorry, Genesis 30. I'm sorry. And so the result of this was this jealousy, this bitterness, this vengeful attitude from Edom towards Israel. And so bad was it that when Israel left Egypt, uh, left Egypt, okay, this is going back when they are all enslaved in Egypt, right? Edom would not even let Israel cross into their land to go back to the land of Canaan. That's how long this bitterness had been at play. So now we come through the modern time when we're talking about Ezekiel, modern in terms of Ezekiel's concern. We see Israel has been sieged by their neighbors, and Edom not only doesn't help, but they celebrate Israel's downfall, and they then plot to take the land back as their own by birthright of Esau. And God says, I will destroy you because of that. Now, the problem with all this is, you might think, well, this is just a political posturing, but the problem is, is that Edom suffers from a lack of historical and spiritual awareness as to what the real problem is. Because at the end of the day, it wasn't that Edom had been done wrong. It was because Esau himself sold off his birthright. 
and they refused to look at the real issue. They re you remember he had profaned his heritage and his birthright. So regardless of Jacob's intentions or his actions, Esau ultimately defiled his own inheritance and he traded it, come on now, for a bowl of soup. Now, if, if there's anything out there that's a great illustration about sin and death in our life, that has to be that, right? That we would trade in our birthright for what? A bowl of soup. It's what, it's what C.S. Lewis says, we're content to make mud pies out of puddles rather than to behold the glories of what it means to be on vacation, to be at sea, to see who God is. Esau is as guilty of this as any man in history. And so this whole thing that we're finding here in chapter 35 is all of this has it as its underground. So then Ezekiel's point is simple, and it's most clearly made clear when we start picking up in verse 10 again, okay? So let's keep on going. Because you said these two nations and these two lands will be mine, and you will possess them, though the Lord was there. Therefore, I, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord. I will treat you according to the anger and jealousy you have showed in your hatred for them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have heard all the blasphemies you have uttered against the mountains of Israel, saying that they are desolate, they have been given to us to devour. You boasted against me with your mouth, and you spoke many words against me. I, I heard it myself. This is what the Lord God says. While the whole world rejoices, I will make you a desolation. Just as you rejoiced over the inheritance of the house of Israel because it became a desolation, I will deal the same way with you. I, you will become a desolation, Mount Seir, and so will all of Edom in its entirety. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So what we have here then is God's response to all of this jealousy and bitterness that has enraptured this relationship between Edom and Israel, and God is now finally putting an end to it. The heart of the issue was not how Israel was ultimately treated, but notice in this passage that I heard the blasphemous words that came out of your mouth towards me, towards my land, towards my covenant, towards what I did through Jacob. That's the problem that God's dealing with here. Edom is jealous because God chose Jacob over Esau. This is a Romans 9 thing, is it not? And this is exactly what we do in the world today, is that people rage at God because they're jealous that God chooses Jacob over Esau. That God would actually have the audacity in his own, his own sovereign promises to take a people and save them by his own mercy, not by anything else. Not even anything worthy in them, one people over another. So what we have here in this is God is not just concerned for Edom or the other nation, but he's also concerned by the fact that Israel was not honored, and ultimately what it says to God is, you don't honor me and my sovereign rule over you and the rest of the world. Now, God's not just concerned about Edom, because as we get into chapter 36, he's also going to turn to Israel and deal with Israel too. So even as the nations, and Edom being most specifically focused here, God has, was primarily not judging the nations, but he was judging Israel. All throughout Ezekiel. Why? For their hard hearts. All along, all of this stuff that's going on out here geopolitically and how God's doing and working with that providentially, he is still most concerned with the condition of his hearts of his own people that he has made a covenant with, and he is concerned about their faithlessness. They continually turned their hearts to the power and prestige of other nations for hope, for safety, for comfort. 
And so when we find in verses 30, chapter 36, verse through 15, which I'm not going to read for time's sake, we see that God is stepping in on Israel's behalf. And it's wonderful. It's not discouraging news at all. And he's, he's, he's saying he's going to make right in Israel what has been diminished by their own failure and by what the other nations have done to him. He will restore the land and he will provide fruitful pasture in this land for his covenant people to roam and graze in once again. And we remember that from last week. But when we get to chapter six, I mean, verse 16 in chapter 36, which I will read, here's what we find. And he deals with Israel point, pointedly. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. While the house of Israel lived in their land, they defiled it with their conduct and their actions. Their behavior before me was like a menstrual impurity. So I poured out my wrath on them because of the blood they had shed on the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations and they were scattered among the countries. I judged them according to their own conduct and actions. And when they came to the nations where they went, they profaned my holy name because it was said about them, these are the people of God. Yet they had they had to leave the land in exile. Then I had concern for my holy name, which is the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they went. So what we have here is God's coming in here and he's saying it's not just the nations that are at God's concern, but it's actually more Israel who has been a stench to God because they've, they have taken their worship and they've altered it and they've accommodated it to the pagan worship of their nations and they have forgotten their God. Now, this is where we transition now to what I want to do with the rest of my time, with the balance of my time this morning. At the end of the day, here's how you sum up everything we've just talked about. Both Israel and the nations are essentially guilty of the same crime. They have not prized God's glory and his namesake over all things. That is the condition of human heart. Friend, you're sitting in here this morning, save Jesus, saving your soul. You have had no inclination ever before Jesus stepping in and the Spirit saving you from your, your desperate condition. You had no other desire to do anything other than to make your name great, to make your purposes great, and you have devalued, like all mankind has, God's glory and His namesake above all things. Now that's important because God will not allow his name to be sullied by the hard-hearted faithfulness of his own people, much less the arrogant pride and jealousy of the other nations. God won't let it happen. And I don't care where you're sitting in here this morning. I don't care what you're thinking about the nature of Christian religion. I don't care what you're thinking. You may be in here this morning thinking, ah, this is a bunch, of, a, bunch of, a bunch of mess. And I'm telling you, as it is revealed in Scripture, as God has revealed himself, he has said who he is, and you and I will give account to that. That is, just the, that is just the nature of the game. And it's in this context that you and I understand rightly the question I asked earlier is now what does the shepherd come to do? What is the assignment of the good and better shepherd that is coming? What will it be? And so the rest of my time I'm organizing the sermon under two main ideas, two main headings. And there's headings are in 36, 22, what I read earlier through the end of the chapter primarily. And here's what they are. That the shepherd comes to vindicate the great name of God. And two, the shepherd vindicates the great name of, of God through the new covenant. Okay? 
Those are the two things we're going to spend the balance of our time thinking about this morning. That the shepherd vindicates the great name of God, and he does so primarily through the new covenant. As I said in our comment, that God vindicates his name by redeeming a people for his own possession. But that's what we're going to deal with for the rest of the time. So now, let's look at that first point. The shepherd vindicates the great name of God. And what I want to do here in this first point is I want to tell you that there is a, there is a rightness to this. This is not some small, short man God who's just out here going, look at me, look at me. But the shepherd is doing the most right thing he could ever do by, by, by spending his ministry and his assignment vindicating the great name of God. So when we consider the issue of vindicating God's name, we must establish why this is of supreme importance, not only for people in Ezekiel's day, but for every person sitting in this room this morning who will hear this message or perhaps anyone who may hear it beyond here. And it comes down to asking two fundamental questions. Who is God? And what does God say is good and true? And so let's just consider what the Bible says about who God is. What does God say? Who is God? Well, let's just consider the fact that God is Alpha and Omega. That he is the beginning and the end of all things. This is what the Bible reveals about God. First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted head above all. Or Psalm 24, 7, lift up your heads, O gates. One of our most popular call to worships here at Grace Church. Lift up your heads, O gates. Appropriate to call us into worship in such a manner. Yes, lift up your heads. Why? Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. And who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. So to know God is to know that the Bible declares God as the great Alpha and Omega. He is the beginning and end of all things. That includes the beginning and end of your life and everything that goes along with it. There is absolutely no independent being who's ever existed in this world besides God. You and I are dependent because God created you and he makes you for his own purposes and for his own pleasure. Not only is God Alpha and Omega, God rules and reigns over all things. Consider Psalm 96, the Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him, and righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world, this earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. So he's not just Alpha and Omega in some general sense, but he actually rules and reigns right now over all things. It's important that we recognize that. Psalm 102.15, nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth will fear his glory. They may not do it now, they may not want to do it now, but they will one day. Amen. And we got to pray that as we're going about our business, loving and caring for our neighborhood and being good citizens in the neighborhood, that we help people, we do our best so that they with the nations will fear the Lord, name of the Lord. That's important part of our call, part of our call. Not only he rules and reigns, but God will not and cannot share his glory with another. The Bible says this all over the Bible. 
all over the pages of, its, of the Holy Script. Psalm 115.1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and for your faithfulness. Friends, the world and this life is not about your glory. Not to us. Not to us. But to your great name. Isaiah 42.8, I am the Lord. So God's speaking through the prophet Isaiah. I am the Lord. This is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Look, you can walk out of here and you can down and eye this if you want to. But this, we believe is true, will be the, what we will answer to in the so when we know who God is and who he has revealed himself to be in the pages of Scripture through many people who helped write the Scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible. Here's, we can answer the second question, what does God say is good and true? Because that's also important. It's not that, that who God is, but what does God say is true? And namely, that God is holy. Isaiah 43, 15, I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. God says, you can't relate to me unless you know that I am holy. Exodus 5, 15, 11, who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? The answer to that, no one. No one. And not only is he holy, but because he's holy, the Bible also says he's just. So that in all of the injustices that we might find and have to deal with in this broken down world in which we live in, we can be assured that this holy God is not some inept, aloof, separated from us God, but he's actually a God of justice, which means he has interest in this world. And Deuteronomy 32, 4 says he is the rock. His work is perfect for all of his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. So then when we find there are spaces in this world where injustice fail, or justice fails and there's injustice rampant, where do we turn to? We turn to the God of justice. That's our own means, that's our own programs, that's our own plans, but to God. And when it continues to fail, we know that one day, ultimately, God will right what has went wrong. Micah 6.8, popular verse among a lot of people who love justice. He's told you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but that you do justice, that you love kindness, and that you walk humbly with your God. I mean, it seems to me as you read that passage, which is a very popular passage of all the justice seekers out there, right? This is a popular passage, but when you divorce it from Deuteronomy 32, it kind of is emptied of its own meaning. But when you look at them together, these two verses we just looked at, what you find is what God defines as justice is a people who walk humbly under his rule and reign in life. And in light of that, they bear the fruit of their salvation in loving kindness and justice in the world. You see how I reverse that? That we went from work from the back end to the front end. That God defines justice based on the fact of his own redemptive purposes in the world. And so to, to find perfect justice in this world will only come at the foot of the cross. Right? Right? 
Romans 13, the one very popular one about justice. And this is something we need to remember in light of the world we live in today and the world that every Christian has inhabited and among any kinds and all kinds of offerings of magistrates and rulers, wicked or not. Beloved, Paul says, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay it, says the Lord. Ultimately, it it doesn't encourage us not to participate in work in the work of the world, this is not what it's saying there. It calls us in various places to be good citizens and to do, live quiet lives and to love and to do justice, as we just saw in Micah 6, 8. But at the end of the day, you and I resign ourselves that when justice fails, and it does, and it does often, and you just read or listen to anything you see in the world out there on the news, here's where we land. Vengeance is the Lord's. And he'll do with it in his good timing what he will. So the summary of all this, this importance of God's name to be vindicated, is this. God is God, and we are not. And if God is God and we are not, we are rightly must remember several things. And this is where it gets practical for a moment. You and I, we're not sovereign over the affairs of our life. We make the best choices we know how in front of us to the best of our knowledge and the best of our ability understanding Scripture, yes. But we are not sovereign over our lives. And any attempt to try to be sovereign over our lives apart from God, it will, uh, will result in utter failure. Two, you and I are not given the right to usurp God's prerogatives. What God says is good, God says is good. And anyone who would say what God is good and do that and turn around and do something different, God will judge the wicked. You and I are not holy in all of our essence like life, like God is. We need always and only Jesus, what he's accomplished for us. What makes the church the church isn't our own holiness per se, but Christ's holiness through us to the world. My holiness just won't do. It never has and it never will. But Christ's holiness running through the veins of my life, oh yeah, God does powerful things, even in churches like us who've been going about our business now for seven years. And last, you and I cannot dispense perfect justice in this life like God can. Second thing, though, in this, trying to sum up this first point of vindicating God's name, the shepherd vindicating God's name and why he should do that, is God must hold his glory uppermost in his own affections. It means the most important thing God can do is to make sure at the end of the day his glory is known. This is... This is like John Piper Theology 101 here, okay? So read any book you want to by John Piper, and you're going to come up with this theme somewhere along the line, okay? But it's not new with John Piper. It goes all the way back through the Protestants. It goes back to Jonathan Edwards. This is not new with him. He just does a really good job of articulating it in our modern age. That God must hold, must, and that word's important, must hold his own glory uppermost in his own affections. And many of us get stumped by that, right? Because it kind of goes back to what I said 
a few moments ago. If God prizes his own glory above everything else, would that not make God some kind of megalomaniac? You probably thought that. Like, really? Is that who God is? Is that what I want God to be? Well, that's the question, right? A lot of times the reason we approach God the way we do is we want God to be something that we want him to be, but rather than who God actually is. No, it doesn't make God a megalomaniac to pursue his own glory above all things. You know why? That could only be true. That could only be true if his glory is in any way deficient. But being the fact that what we've just read in Scripture and his glory is not deficient, it is above all things, he is not wrong to prize anything above his own glory. In fact, if God were to prize anything but his own glory as the most intimate, as the the most end of all things, you know what that would make God? An idolater. Idolatry is defined by worshiping something less than who God is. And if God were to say, you are the prize of his life, he would be an idolater. But because God says, I will be, my glory be named in all the worth, and I will save them not on their account, not for their good, as it says here in the text, but for my glory, what that means is, is your salvation is far more beautiful than you have ever imagined in your entire life. Because God says, out of my own glory, and I will demonstrate my own glory by the salvation of a people for my own possession. Therefore, we must see that God's work of redemption then as this as this means by which we will demonstrate his own, he will demonstrate his own glory and preeminence through the salvation that he gives us and provides for us. For the glory of himself first, and secondly, for our good and transformation, and perhaps reaching our own, you know, betterment in whatever way that may be. My relationship with my dad has always been a frustrating one because it's, it kind of runs similar to this. My dad grew up, grew up in a, I told you, in a fundamentalist background, but my dad was one of those guys who can never, has never really been able, and I'm not talking down about my dad. This is just a reality. It's a story that it shapes who I am. My dad is not a member of a church to this day. It has not been a member of a church for, I'm 47 years old now, so I would say since I was seven years old. The last time I can remember him being meaningfully involved in the church. He's visited a few times. He's come along with me to church. He's come along with my brother to church. But he's never done. And here's his, here's his question. Here's the reason why. Well, I, I will. I will. I'll get back in church one day. I'll get back in church when I kind of get to the place where I've got things together and, I'm, and, I, and I really can be a part of the church and I can get things together and I look good and everything's kind of back in order. But right now my life is such a mess. I just can't go back to church. And friends, that redefines what the church is. I would argue and have argued with this man for 40 years of my life. All of my adult life for the last, well, I, turned, I guess I'm 18 as an adult, although you know, we might question that these days. But, um, but 30 years. Dad, you're getting it backwards. The church is a people saved for God's glory, out of, for his own possession. And only in that does he make us into what we are to be. So it leads us into the second point, the final point. The means by which the shepherd vindicates his great name, which, again, as I said, is the new covenant. 
So the, the shepherd is right to go and do everything in his power according to the assignment that he's been given by the Father to go and vindicate the great name of God because his glory is supreme over all things. And the main way that the shepherd goes about doing that is through the new covenant. This is why I want to go get here today. Because if you want to talk about having a new heart, being sprinkled clean, you cannot grasp that if you have not looked at everything we've just looked at over the last few minutes. I just don't believe you can. For the rest of our time, we're going to look at Ezekiel 32, I mean, 36, 22 through 38. We're going to look at it pretty briefly, pretty rapidly, and look with delight at the promise of this new covenant. And I particularly want us to notice the work of redemption that is birthed out of this text, the picture of it that we see as we go along. So the good shepherd, number one, saves in order to bring God's glory into view. Look at verses 22. Through 23. Therefore, says the Lord, that says, uh, therefore, say to the house of Israel, this is what the Lord God says It is not for your sake that I will act, house of Israel, but for my name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations. I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have profaned among them, the nations will know that I am the Lord. This is a declaration of the Lord when I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. The good shepherd saves in order to bring God's glory into view on the earth. You don't get yourself cleaned up. Fruit doesn't precede faith. Faith precedes fruit. And when you live in a life that is always focusing on your fruit before your faith, you are getting it backwards. But God saves you by his grace through Jesus so that you will be a demonstration to the world of God's great glory to save sinners out of the the wretched mess that they're in. The good shepherd saves you in order to bring God's glory into view. Number two, God's Good shepherd um, executes all the promises of the new covenant in order to do so. And so for the next few verses, we're going to look at all of the entrails, if you will, of this new covenant. All the entrails of uh, salvation, of the gospel. And so let's just get to work, shall we? Verse 25. I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. That means through the new covenant... You will be cleansed. Did you cleanse yourself? No, you did not. Jesus cleanses you. That's what baptism is all about, right? Baptism is a memorial. It's a picture. It's a demonstration. It's a promise. It's a sacrament. Not of what you have made to God, but what God has made for you, that he will sprinkle you clean. That's what baptism is all about. Look at verse 26. I will give you a new heart and put in you a new spirit. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. In the new covenant, we get new hearts. Praise God. My old heart, it's not good. And through the work of the Holy Spirit, yes, there's been change, but there's a new heart, and it'll be fully completed when Jesus returns, yes. But this is what God has been promising throughout the Old Testament. This circumcision that he gave Abraham, it was ultimately, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, it's ultimately about the circumcision of the heart. God will cut it open and it'll beat again and it'll it'll bleed and it'll have life. Verse 27, 
I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow all my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. In other words, you will be through the new covenant indwelt with the Holy Spirit. Who gave you the Holy Spirit? Jesus did. Who cleanses you? Jesus did. Who gives you a new heart? Jesus did. But there's more. Second part of 27 right there, it says, and you will follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Therefore, in the new covenant, you will not only be indwelt with a new spirit, but you will be indwelt with a new love for God's law. Faith precedes fruit. Through the new covenant, you will flourish. Look at verses 28 through 30. You will live in a land that I gave you, gave your ancestors, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. I will save you from all your uncleanness. I will summon the grain and make it plentiful, and I will not bring famine on you. I will also make the fruit of the trees and the produce of the field plentiful so that you will no longer experience reproach among the nations on account of, the, of famine. And then lastly, well, no, actually two more, sorry. The new covenant will give... You, we will, through the new covenant, we will be given the gift of repentance and humility. Verse 31 through 32. You remember your evil ways and your deeds and you, that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and detestable practices. It is not for your sake that I will act, for this is a declaration of the Lord. Let this be known to you and be ashamed and humiliated, i.e., humility, because of the ways of your ways, O house of Israel. Do you see how the picture of salvation is developing here? I will cleanse you, I will give you a new heart, I will put my spirit in you, I will give you a new love for my law, I will cause you to flourish, and I will even give you the gift of repentance and faith. Who gives us all these things? The Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd. And, and here's most glorious as well, love. I love this. I can't end it without looking at 37 and 38. Through the New Covenant, a vast amount, a vast, diverse numbers of people will be gathered into this new covenant. 37 and 38. This is what the Lord God says. I will respond to the house of Israel and do this for them. I will multiply them in number like a flock. So the ruined cities will be filled with a flock of people, just as Jerusalem is filled with a flock of sheep for sacrifice during its appointed festivals. Then they will know that I am the Lord. If you were to take all of that and just examine it for the rest of the afternoon, the rest of the week, which I could think you probably could spend weeks on this, what does it show you? Doesn't it show you the wonderful inworking of all the outwork of redemption, the promise of redemption for his people? That everything that it takes for you and I to be saved and be part of God's people has been graciously given to us by the God, by the God of heaven and earth. Election. I mean, think about, the, think, about the, think about the order of salutis. I know that's a big word, but that's the, how we order our understanding of salvation. All the different elements that go into salvation. Election, God is still committed to his covenant of grace to save his people. We've seen that. Atonement, God provides a sufficient payment for our sin through his son Jesus who will die on the cross for our sins. Gospel call, God declares all the nations that he will save a people for himself. Inward call, God sweetly invites us gently to be his sheep and to come into his, his sheepfold. Uh, uh, regeneration, God gives us new hearts. Conversion, he gives us the gift of faith and repentance. Justification, Christ's righteousness is exchanged for our unrighteousness. Sanctification, God ensures that his people will grow in the fruits of righteousness through inward work of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, glorification, God will bring his people into their forever home. How many of us have just a truncated view of salvation? Yes? But when we look at it from this scope, doesn't it just blow your mind? 
If it doesn't, I, 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 I pity you. If you can sit in this room and not see this, and not see this, and not see the beautiful nature of a God who has intimately and precisely pursued you into salvation. And if you're here this morning, and if it's just a twinge, just a twinge, just a twinge, that this might be right, and you're not a believer, I suggest you examine your heart to the depths of, the, of, of fullness, and you turn and bend your knee to your Lord Jesus Christ, and you do it before you walk out of this room this morning. Because you can't hear this without one of two responses. Glory or abject rejection. There's no medial ground, right? There's just no way to be in the middle on this. So let's wrap it up. Because the good shepherd was sent to us, Jesus, our Savior and Redeemer, you and I are now a new people in every way possible. Isn't that beautiful? And so I want to give you some encouragements and some challenges this morning before we leave. Encouragements. Rejoice. Rejoice that everything you are as a Christian has been provided for you in Jesus. That should be your singular aim in life. Also rejoice that you and I get to participate in God's new family with assurance and confidence. This past week, we one of the readings in our um, Advent, we read through day eight in Advent reading, in our Spurgeon reading, that some of you are going through this, this, this Advent season. And he, he just noted the humility of Christ to be born in a manger. And we use this as a way to talk about how this humility of Christ being born in a manger is God's invitation to the most humiliated on earth to come be his. Amen? I don't care where you've been and what messes you've made. And Jesus, Jesus doesn't either. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and labored, and, labored, and I will give you rest. So when Jesus is born in a manger during this Christmas season, be reminded of the humility of Christ that involves all the humiliated, all the humble, all the downtrodden, all the lowest of low, and he invites you to come unto him. We looked over it during that time at Hebrews 10, verses 19 through 26. I won't read it again for time's sake, but in that it says, because we have a great confidence to come into the throne room because of what Christ has accomplished, you now have assurance. Confidence and assurance. Go read it yourself. Hebrews 10, 19 through 26 or so. You have confidence. Rejoice that you can have confidence and assurance that is not based on your own efforts or your own productivity in your own life, but it's based on only one thing and one thing alone, on Christ's accomplishments. Now some challenges, then we'll be done. Rest. I take this one seriously because this is the one. This is the one that hits me the most. Stop looking to self-improve. Stop looking to your own personal advancements before you feel able to fully participate in the church who is the inheritance of God now. You are 
God's inheritance. And he has given you all of that in Christ. So rest. When you rest, you get a little bit more holy because you're resting in Christ and his holiness. Your value to the God or to the church is not predicated on your suitability for fellowship with the church or for God. You are not suitable for fellowship on your own. God makes you suitable. God makes you suitable. Repent. Rest. Repent. Stop thinking that your salvation is of Jesus, but somehow or another your sanctification is some kind of solo effort. It's not. You need the people of God. You need the Bible. You need prayer. You need the means of grace. The church. You just need these things. So repent. Stop doing this by yourself. Get in. Lastly, enjoy. You must enjoy the feast of free grace in order to enjoy the inheritance you have been given. Enjoy. I started this illustration with enjoying fine meat, right? What a feast we are going to enjoy one day with Jesus. Amen. But, that, but it's not that we have to wait for that feast. We can enjoy that feast right now. Indeed, we do every week when we do the Lord's Supper. We're enjoying this feast as a memorial, the remembrance of a, of a promise of one day that we'll enjoy this feast once again with our Savior Jesus. But when you enjoy that feast of free grace, you will enjoy the inheritance He gives you all the more. Please enjoy the feast. Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, help your people to rejoice, to rest, to repent, and to enjoy all the benefits of our salvation that we have found in Jesus Christ. And as we come to the table this morning, may it be all the more true said of this church that we are enjoying the inheritance we have in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this time. It's in Christ's name. Amen.